The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. I want this industry to succeed. I want us to help tackle climate change. I want us to help feed the world. I want us to supply the world's farmers and horticulturalists and foresters. And that's where we should be focusing our energies as an industry. So my plea would be, you know, let's work together. Let's try and make this thing happen. Let's uh, cross the chasm and do our bit to support these massive global challenges. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 7. Regular listeners, welcome back. I appreciate you taking time of your busy schedules with so much going on in this world to return each and every week to listen to these fascinating conversations. They really light up my day and I hope they do the same for you. I've been hearing from new folks that have been discovering the show, but they're actually going back and listening to the entire catalog, which blows my mind and is incredibly humbling as a podcaster since 2014 with my original show, Podcast Junkies. I understand the value that a podcast provides and when you hear something that resonates, how much you want to learn about everything that's happening in the space. And then in this case, hear from all these fascinating CEOs, especially if you're new to the industry or you want to keep up to date with what's happening. So it's not something I take lightly. And when I hear that, I'm uh, incredibly grateful for anyone <laughs> that undertakes that. If you are new to the show and you just found this podcast, well, we always roll out the welcome mat to new listeners everywhere we can, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to discover new shows and to listen to this one, and hopefully you'll be coming back week after week. In case you missed last week's episode, we spoke to Alexander Caps. He's the CEO of Greener Crop. In that episode, he shared his passion for indoor farming, the work that they're doing in Dubai, where we actually first connected the potential for hydroponic farming to address food security issues, and how Greener Crop is leading the charge in that part of the world. Make sure you listen to that if you have not already. This week, to wrap up Season 7, we bring it back full circle with our very first guest on this podcast, 
who was also guest number 12. And now here he is, round three, David Farquhar, CEO of IGS. Believe it or not, David and I had never met in person, and we finally did at Indoor AgCon in Las Vegas earlier this year. It's so nice to meet some of my past guests, shake their hand, spend some time chatting with them. And I was really happy to do that with David. And in our conversation, we knew that it was time for a revisit as he wanted to share some of his thoughts on what's been happening in the industry. We talk a little bit about the long-lasting effects of the pandemic and the increase in deglobalization and relocalization, which is really important in how IGS thinks about their solutions. He explains how IGS is providing the expertise to help farmers grow crops with precision and accuracy, and how they're partnering with local councils and food banks and educational institutions to develop innovative solutions. It was great to see David on a friendly debate panel at Indoor AgCon, talking about the merits of greenhouse versus vertical farming. And I think the main takeaway there was it depends. And it's interesting to see how David has made sure that the focus for IGS is on the technology and putting all their efforts into the best way to do that. As you heard me mention, we are wrapping up season seven. So what this allows is time for me to take a little break and breathe a collective sigh. And also to thank you for this incredible journey. I cannot believe we are closing in on three years of this show and we are showing no signs of slowing down. Let me tell you, when I first started, <laughs> I really thought it was going to be a couple of rounds of interviews and little did I know how much this would have an impact on my life and how many connections and relationships I would begin to build in this space. I look forward to these conferences. I've got a couple coming up this year. I'll be at Vertifarm. Hopefully at I'll be able to make it to AgriMe and also Interactic and in, in New York City as well. If you're one of those folks that are listening to past episodes, this is a great opportunity for you to get caught up. So we'll likely be taking probably a week, maybe two off as we get our interviews produced. Let me tell you, there's no shortage of conversations. I'm going to give you a little bit of a sneak peek at what's coming up for season eight. And it's a veritable who's who of folks in the industry. We've got Daphne Prius from Carbon Book, Jonathan Murray from Adapt Ag. Alaric Overbay from Greenside Up, Alberto Aguilar from Planta Food, a return visit from Cultivated's Eric Levesque, Marcos Enriquez from Isid Farmer, Gabriel Zarafonitas from Farm Anywhere, Sonia Lowe from Unfold, Alexander Olison from Babylon Microforms, and Samuel Bertram from 1.1, folks that have been scheduled, that have been recorded, and looking at the upcoming list, there's another handful of folks that are in the works in terms of me having conversations with their team about getting them on the show, so... No doubt, we are even close to getting season eight guests fully booked. If you have an interest in partnering with us, by all means, please reach out. There's still time, there's still space for us to partner together on season eight. Reach out, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Okay, before we get into this uninterrupted conversation with David, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This year, Vertifarm takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to Vertifarm, it's the most significant trade fair for next-level farming and new food systems. Their international platform is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs, and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. Vertifarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertifarm.de. That's V-E-R-T-I-F-A-R-M dot D-E. So David Farkar, CEO of Intelligent Growth Solutions, we are back for round three on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you so much for making time again. No problem, Harry. It's always a pleasure. 
great to see you. We managed to shake hands and uh, say hi at uh, Indoor AgCon in we Las did. Vegas as well. Yeah. What's travel been like for you lately? Well, after I got back from Indoor AgCon, we'll, we went straight on to an investment conference in San Francisco via Denver and Salt Lake City. It's a rather circuitous uh, route. And then I was uh, I came home for the Scotland-Ireland rugby match okay. on the Sunday. And then, because that had been organized a year before any of these conferences <laughs> came out, and I had yeah. tickets and I had two guests from Dublin. And on the Monday, I was supposed to go back to San Francisco for World Agritech. And instead, I ended up sitting with damp shoes on a plane on the tarmac at Edinburgh Airport for between five and six hours while they wow. tried to fix things and couldn't. And that's why I've got this horrible cold. So excuse me if I sound a little bit nasal today. Who won the match? Oh, don't ask me that. <laughs> There's my answer. Got it. Okay. So what was your biggest takeaway from Indoor Icon? I got to see you at the panel on the, the, the friendly debate of greenhouses versus vertical farms as well. Yeah, so for me, the reaction to what I was saying to people on the panel, first of all, it was a great conversation. Yeah. The other chap was, uh, you know, very knowledgeable, clearly very experienced. And, you know, they were very keen for us to talk about one thing versus another. But, you know, my core message was that that is just not the right way to think about it. We've seen people talking about you know, vertical farming or controlled environment ag is going to replace traditional agriculture. It's just not. It really is just not. We don't grow enough food in the world or we don't grow it in the right place or it isn't the right quality. We have empty shelves. We have the 99 cent lettuce now retailing at $4 in America and $6 in Canada. There's a world shortage of chilies. There's a world shortage of vanilla. There's a world shortage of tree seedlings, blah, blah, blah. So we need every growing medium we can lay our hands on as we continue to procreate at a ridiculous rate and head toward, you know, nine or 10 billion souls on the planet. You know, I was born in 1958 and there were about 2.8 and that had taken 300,000 years and it's taken my lifetime for that to treble. Wow. It's ridiculous. So we first connected in 2020, and I, I mentioned this during our, our the panel discussion in our icon that you were uh, gracious enough to be our, our first guest on the show. How much has changed in the industry just in the, the two years that we've been connected? What have you seen? What is anything that's caused for alarm? And it, do you get a sense that the industry is evolving? So what's happened is that a relatively small number of high-profile wannabe vertical farming businesses who have been trying to build their own technology had to raise hundreds of millions and in you know at least one case more than a billion dollars worth of investment and when you look at their reported revenue figures you know some of them are in the like half a million others are in single digit million and it just takes me back to when I first took over IGS and the ambition of the company at the time was to do the same thing, that we would design the equipment, build and operate our own farms. And the more I looked at it and talked to the serious investors that we now have on our cap table, the more it became obvious to me that that was going to be an extremely expensive way 
to try and build a business, especially when, you know, you're only growing kale or something like that. And so, you know, I don't, I'm not a farmer. My only connection with the food industry is that I trained as a chef, as did my wife. So, you know, I care about food a great deal. And so the passion that I had was to build a sort of infrastructure company, tech company that would be able to supply farmers. I live in a farming community on the edge of the Scottish Highlands. So lots of my friends are farmers. And we know from conversations with them at the pub, you know, just how hard a life that is. You know, you're operating at the vagaries of the weather. And so you would think with all of these shortages and the fact that you should have a controlled weather system, a controlled environment ag, that the sector would be absolutely booming. And, you know, it's not, frankly. And what concerns me is the more conversations we have with investors, ecosystem partners, seriously large customers and so on, and even governments, there is a huge amount of skepticism that the industry is ever really going to gain momentum and make it or cross the chasm, if you will. And the number, I mean, Henry Gordon Smith published a table of failures and incidents like cost-cutting, layoffs, failed SPACs, double treble fundraisings, and all these kinds of things. And, you know, there have been some other really well-written articles, uh, you know, uh, talking about the woes of the industry. And my biggest fear, I have to say, Harry, is that the category is going to be damaged. People are going to say, you know what, nice idea, but we just don't see it working. And that's what really concerns me more than anything else. So, I mean, the question I put to the audience in Las Vegas, if you remember, was, can anyone put their hand up and tell me the name of the last farmer to build their own combine harvester? Yeah, I remember that. That got quite a reaction. And, you know, so if you're not really a farmer, if you're not really a tech company, this is like trying to ride two motor bicycles at once without any, you know, training. It's really not going to be a happy ending. And my concern is that, you know, we need more if you like, coming together in the ecosystem of farmers and farm operators with technology vendors or infrastructure vendors like us. And it's only when that really happens, as it does with all new tech markets, that the industry is going to take off. I read that article that Henry wrote about the trough of disillusionment uh, in terms of the cycle that we're at now. Do you think that's important to have a distinction, as you've pointed out, if there's a cycle happening within farms themselves, are they going through a trough disillusionment as opposed to a different cycle that's happening for companies like yourself, which are more tech focused? So I think, you know, you have to look at farming. So whether it's traditional broadacre field or partially controlled environments like greenhouses and things. So you have to look at them and say that, you know, some of them are really struggling at the moment. And whether it's a trough of disillusionment, I, I think it's just, you know, they're struggling with the economic headwinds. They're struggling with logistics. They're struggling with labor in some places. And they're struggling with energy prices. I mean, the Dutch greenhouse industry has really suffered because of high gas prices. And, you know, we see that happening in other parts of the world. I'm not sure that is quite the sort of Gartner hype cycle and the trough of disillusionment. I I just think it's current uh, economic reality. If you then look at, and, you know, 
in the UK, as an example, because of Brexit, we can't get the labor here. And so there are stories of people just opening the polytunnels that they've been growing strawberries in all summer and saying, come and get it because we can't pick it. We can't sell it to you. So you may as well come and take it away. And, you know, people losing money hand over fist in that kind of situation. And then other elements of the weather have caused things like potato harvests to be particularly poor. Now, that's not just happening in the UK, obviously. It's, it's happening very widely. The size of the tubers they're getting is like half what they would normally expect. The numbers of tubers are smaller and the quality is just not there because you've got saturated ground, for example. Or in other places, it's far too arid because there isn't enough rain. So all of these things are having huge impacts. I think there aren't very many infrastructure providers yet in controlled environment ag. I mean, in terms of the vertical farming market, apart from IGS, there aren't really many others that appear to be making significant progress. And so my worry is that when it comes to the people who are trying to build their own and operate them, I think that is hitting a trough of disillusionment because the yields they're getting the quality they're getting, the range of crops they're able to grow is really just not sufficient to satisfy market demand. There's, you know, we can only eat so much kale. So I am very concerned and I, you know, I think we need more players coming along, providing infrastructure, because we're going to need lots and lots and lots of it. When you were raising that last round, David, how much of and education is needed or was needed for your investors to make this distinction about the type of company that you are versus what people see from the outside in terms of the industry and the different types of fundings that those companies that may have failed needed versus what you're looking for and what you're trying to build. So the thing that they, they always focus on the management team, of course they do. And, you know, I've deliberately put together a team that has, you know, several decades experience each in the tech sector, whether it's building product, whether it's marketing, whether it's selling. So we do have some people from the horticulture and the agriculture industry, but they're primarily working on things like crop science. The folks that we've sought to attract into the main bit of the company are all people with track records in the tech sector. And, you know, that's been really important because you... The industry is not one that a lot of people know very much about. But on the other hand, if they do know a lot about building robust, reliable products and productizing them, you know, moving away from bespoke to it's a machine, you can have one of three different sizes. But other than that, it's Henry Ford and any color you like, as long as it's black. So people that are able to do that and understand how that works, that's been really been the focus for us. The other big thing, so aside from the team, was the business model. And that was probably the thing that investors looked at the most. And when they saw the economics around what we have to do to get farms out there to farmers versus, you know, the amount of investment it takes to build and then operate your own kit, it was kind of like chalk and cheese. So the thing that we probably get commented on more than anything else is the business model. And so where do you stand now and in terms of the partners that you're bringing on board that are working with IGS and has any of that changed with in light of the recent news about some of the shutdowns? Are you having different conversations with some of your partners and clients? 
So, you know, partners from the point of view of investors, we have people coming to us all the time because the positive news is that there is still a huge amount of interest. And I can't quite say belief yet, but I can definitely say hope that this industry is going to flourish. It's going to gain proper momentum and cross the chasm. And I think that that hope is driving people to, you know, go around, do their research and look for business models that appear to make sense. So we're having those approaches, you know, all the time, at least one a week. And, you know, we say to people at the moment, okay, right now we're not looking for further investment. You know, we're focused this year very much on the rollouts of the farms across four continents, but also continuing to bring in new pipeline and work in new geographies. And so those conversations, and that would include governments as well. We had great call with a major ecosystem partner of ours, one of the biggest tech companies in the world today who are wanting to get into partnership with us and focus initially on one particular Asian market. And so that is a very exciting prospect uh, for us because working with folks like that, you know, will help to elevate our brand. And for a scale-up business, that's always like gold dust, you know. I think that some of the major food producers, our food manufacturers, some of the major retailers, the major hospitality uh, players, so if you will, the off-takers, I think they also want to see this happen. But I think at the moment, you know, they're still looking around for a design or a model or a machine that is really going to be able to provide reliable, high quality yield for them. And so we're beginning to have more and more conversations further down the supply chain. And so that's how I see things at the moment. I suppose the other new thing for us was we did our first consumer show late last year, and we did it down in uh, London. And I was skeptical about it at first, but then I thought, well, you know what, wouldn't it be great to hear what the public thinks about food produced in this way? Are they going to think it's Frankenstein food or something, you know, like that. But the word that they used, and one I've just used five minutes ago, the word they used more than any other was hope. So we painted a very frank picture about the state of food supply and food production around the world. And then we showed them what we have, how it works, why it can be, uh, you know, uh, basically put anywhere to grow right next to the point of consumption or point of production or whatever. And that was what people said the most. This is an honest appraisal of where agriculture is, where food production is, and we are concerned about it because we've seen the empty shells. So this brings us a degree of hope. And I think that for me right now is probably the single most important word. Hope that this thing is going to succeed. Hope that we can make things work. And, you know, in our case, as we get more and more farms rolled out there, the hope converts into belief, you know, and proof. And that's what 2023 is all about for IGS. Have you revised or taken a second look at the types of uh, partnerships or the, the clients you work with in lieu of what their model is as a farm, if it's sustainable, if they've got the right infrastructure in place to succeed, because obviously you don't want to be partnering with someone who's going to be out of business themselves in a year. So is there any guidance that you provide them or help that you can give them in terms of best practices? Obviously, not maybe not on the farming side, but I'm, I'm wondering if your thoughts about 
how and who you partner with have changed recently? Yeah, so we are definitely on a push to try to work with larger, more established, well-funded names within the industry. And we are seeing more and more of those types of business look for alternatives to the way that they've previously been either growing or procuring you know, ingredients. And the same actually goes for the forestry market. We had a very successful set of trials with uh, Forest and Land Scotland and the Forestry Commission down in uh, England and Wales. And they would be the equivalent of the US Forest Service, I guess, or the Canadian Forest Service. And the output of the trials that was published by them was that the tree seedlings grew six times faster than a greenhouse and at two thirds the cost. And when you can have a half a million of them in one of our 30 foot high towers, and then you can you know, build 10 or 20 or even 100 of these towers, you know, the ability to generate the number of seedlings that are going to be needed for reforestation, you know, becomes a reality. So working with more substantial organizations like that, working with bigger, more established growers, you know, is really an enhancement to what we've done. But that isn't to say that we're not continuing to work with, you know, newer businesses, businesses that are looking to diversify. So we've got you know, one deployment in England, which is about to double in size to 40 towers. We are negotiating several contracts where the number of towers on a single site is going to be more than 100. I mean, these things will be visible from space. And so we've got people of genuine ambition with ambitious investors. And those are the kind of partnerships that are really working for us. I would also say that about 50% of the customers that we work with have tried to build their own and have decided, nah, you know what, this is just too hard. And I would say that, and it's not the other 50%, but across the piece, about half of the people that we work with are wanting to use the farm, the IGS farm for full cycle seed to harvest uh, growing. The other half are using it for starter plants, whether that is seed potatoes, broccoli, strawberries, tomatoes, uh, the trees, and so on. So it is quite an eclectic mix. As the head of the company, are you thinking differently about the... Has this changed in any way your plans for how you grow the team, how you diversify the skill set needed to meet all these specific different needs? Or do you feel like you have the right mix in place now? So we did a, about a year ago, we did a big coming together of everyone as after COP26, we were starting to really grow the business. So we did a thing called The Gathering, which is an old kind of Scots tradition. Um, and we did it at one of these resort hotels. And our COO, Andrew, uh, did a really clever thing. We were all up, up on stage doing a Q&A, and someone asked about the retention of our culture as we grow so quickly. And a Andrew said, could everybody who was in the company five months ago at COP26 stand up? And only about half the room stood up. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And so, you know, since lockdown started, uh, we've gone from 25 people to over 250. And, you know, maintaining your culture in those kind of circumstances, especially when 
you know, you're probably only on average doing three to four days a week in the office. It's a real challenge. But the way we've done it is we've said, look, this is not a culture from the top down. This is a culture from the bottom up. And, you know, we teach everybody how the culture works, what the values are, when they arrive. And we try to live it every single day. And, you know, one of the things I also discovered when we were warming up for the gathering was we do 63 things. So in order to go from someone being a complete stranger to them having a working farm producing great food or trees, we have to do 63 things, whether it's, you know, describing it, designing it, building it, shipping it, commissioning it, invoicing for it, writing a contract for it, marketing it, selling it, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when you think about 63 functions to get there, that's quite a set of capabilities. And so what we're doing at the moment is building out our capacity in all these different areas and then beginning to grow geographically. So we announced our North American HQ in Colorado um, last year. We have our office in Singapore. We have boots on the ground now in the Middle East. We're probably going to be opening in Australia as well. And so, you know, it's a really, really exciting time. And, you know, our plans are constantly developing because the opportunity that emerges in front of us, you know, just continues to astound us. How do you direct your leadership team when it comes to making decisions about which opportunities to go after, which ones may not be worth it. Obviously, you can't be eyes and ears for everything that's happening at the pace of this growth. So I'm curious how you guide your leadership team so that they can be those eyes and ears for you. So if we think about the three very broad functions, so I have three direct reports in the business, and that's a deliberately small number because, you know, I hire really great people with huge experience. We have three former CEOs on our payroll. And so if we think about opportunities, if we think about sort of the finance and HR side of things, so the support functions, you know, what we try to do with investors is to get the most impactful investors that we can with the deepest knowledge of the sector. And we're really lucky, you know, we've got five investors who are based in the United States. One's actually Swiss domicile, but their agri-tech group is based in New York. And, you know, having people in the Valley, in Chicago and in New York gives us great coverage, certainly across the USA. And then our other two investors are local here in Scotland. So that's quite a nice balance. When we think about hiring, we're always you know looking to hire the best possible people. So the direction there is, you know, let's be ambitious. Let's set up a great benefit system. Let's continue to nurture this great culture, and that way we'll get the best possible people. So that's how we think about that side of the business. In terms of product, you know, we have a fantastic engineering team with 13 different disciplines in it, from R&D all the way through to manufacture and supply chain management. We're now replicating our supply chain in North America, and I suspect we'll eventually will in Asia-Pac. And so we try to work with the best possible partners from that point of view. So we have 40 significant suppliers who are providing components and sub-assemblies into our machine. Each one of our towers at 30 feet high, the middle size, has about 25,000 parts in it and 1,800 part numbers. So it's non-trivial. 
So you really need to work with seriously good people. About 70% of the value of one of our towers is our original equipment, but the 40 partners provide the balance of that. And then all of the system integration is done and design is done by our guys. But we couldn't do it without those 40 partners. So we, we always aim to you know, work with the best, the, the best robotics, the best LEDs, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, best HVAC and things. And then the final piece is, you know, um, choosing who we work with as customers. So we have um, an acronym called FLOAT, and, you know, we analyze our customers depending upon their ability to raise uh, finance. To We need to make sure that they have the location. We need to make sure they have high-quality off-taker agreements, and that is a really, really important one. We need to make sure that they have the authority to make decisions, and we need to make sure that they have some sort of time-bound elements to their planning because we don't want to be having conversations forever. So we use that, and um, it seems to be working really well. You know, I'm very pleased with the quality of the customers, the variety of the customers that we've been able to bring on board. And now we're moving into various different channel situations. So, you know, going from direct sales to working with more and more partners, and that will help us to exponentially grow the business. Has your thoughts about any dependencies you have or uh, challenges with the supply chain that you may have experienced pre-COVID, during COVID, has that had you take another look at how that's organized now, two years later, having had that experience? Yeah, so we've done a couple of things. I mean, we have a great partner in uh, Klockner, the German company that does all of our steel work and, and so on. And actually, that was really tough, probably you know, 12 to 15 months ago, but it, it has radically stabilized. So we are very satisfied that they're a great global partner for us. We work with um, Omron in Japan on things like robotics, some of the el electronics and so on. We work with Osram on, you know, and we use their LEDs at the moment. So there are parts that are easy to procure. There are other parts that can be subject to hiccups in the supply chain. So what we agreed with our investors is that we would start forward ordering significant amounts of inventory. So for any component that we judge to be, you know, amber or red, you know, traffic light system, we've been forward ordering up to 40 towers worth of those parts. That gives us an inventory and it requires a bit of investment. But actually, you know, when you order in bulk, you, act, you do get better prices. So it's a kind of a swings and roundabouts thing. You know, we've had to put some money to work, but, you know, it helps with our margins and so on. And uh, we're satisfied that the design now is stable enough that we can do that forward ordering and maintain an inventory balance. That means that we're going to be able to fulfill all our promises to the customers. Actually, we've now got it to a point with the deployment team where we can now build a tower once the superstructure is done, we can kit out and build a tower with those 25,000 parts and can condition it, commission it, sorry, within about two weeks. Wow. So, you know, once we're on site, it'll be two weeks to get it up and running. They can then start growing crops. And if they're growing something with a really short cycle, they can be generating their first invoice and getting paid within a month. That's great. It sounds like you've really developed a, a robust system 
that can definitely withstand some of the, the, the challenges that you probably experienced during COVID. I'm wondering if your thoughts about where the opportunities for expansion are have changed as well. You mentioned the states, you mentioned APAC. If, you know, we're, do you have a roadmap for what things are going to be looking like in, in 12 to 18 months? And has that changed at all given the existing climate around investment or the fact that people are deciding that it may be better to partner with you instead of growing their own or developing their own technology? Yeah. So, North America has grown really rapidly for us in the course of the last sort of nine to 12 months. That's why we've made the investment in the office and starting to grow the team there. And, um, you know, that team is going to get north of 100 within a relatively short period of time. So at the moment, I'd say right now where we sit today, it's kind of 80-20. So the North Atlantic would be 80% of our business both um, the US and Canada on the one hand, and primarily Northwest Europe on the other hand. Um, then the other 20% of our business is spread across Asia and down to Australia and New Zealand. But, you know, it looks like that is going to gear up as well. So the quality and the number of inquiries that we have and the contracts that we're actually in negotiation on at the moment mean that I think the 80-20 balance will be somewhat evened up, but not completely. I think that the North Atlantic is always going to be the largest part for us. But And then, you know, we do have the odd scattered inquiry from other, you might say, quite radical parts of the world. And it will be interesting to see how they come through in the next two to three years. What's your thoughts about what's happening in the Middle East, in the MENA region, in you know Abu Dhabi, places like that. There seems to be a lot of activity there as well. Yeah, and of course you would expect that. You know, they're wealthy. They have to import almost everything apart from fish that they need to grow. They've got some successful greenhouse operations that are doing uh, well in there, but they are, you know, somewhat constrained to the variety of things that they can grow. There are more and more places now mandating that there should be local production and therefore, you know, they're going to require more and more facilities. And, you know, leading up to COP28, obviously in the UAE, there are pretty significant conversations going on. You know, I can't say any more than that right now, but, you know, watch this space. And, you know, we are, there is, I think, a mood amongst the public sector there that it is time to you know make some key changes in how they procure food and how they encourage people to grow it and i, I think these are entirely sensible entirely uh, positive moves and you know we're delighted to be having those conversations what's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently <laughs> where do the next 100 people come from <laughs> you know we have something like that to recruit this year there are some parts of the some functions where it's very easy actually to recruit people we've been super encouraged by the growth of our data science and crop science teams i think because of the purpose that we have people particularly in the kind of 25 to 40 year old age range are hugely motivated to come and help to contribute to this there are other parts of the business where you know it, it can be a little more challenging but I think because of the purpose, I think because of our culture, we are able to appeal 
to some high quality people. And you know, now that we're just beginning to really get going in North America on the recruitment front, you know, we've got a team of about ten folk there uh, now, uh, but we've appointed a really great head of HR who's leading the charge in terms of recruitment there. And we're learning a great deal about that. You know, the the market is very different. People's expectations and behaviours are very different. You know, when you're bringing them on board and negotiating with them and so on. But that's fine. You know, we've got some experienced leaders in the US. And so I'm confident that we'll be able to put the team together. But I would say that it's, you know, that's the thing that is going to make the biggest difference, you know, continuing to bring in those really high quality members of the crew. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it was I actually asked something to that effect during the panel, because it seems to be a big concern the availability and the diversity of the talent that's needed for, you know, some of this growth that you're speaking about. And it's obviously not just with IGS, but across the board. And I think that's something that's been talked about a lot as well. Yeah, I mean, there are quite a lot of people coming into the market because of the announcements of fairly significant layoffs. And, um, you know, that gives us an opportunity as we're growing. So, you know, there is a silver lining to those particular clouds. So we're having this conversation 12 months from now. What would need to continue to happen for you to be happy with uh, your progress? Deployment. Um, deploy, deploy, deploy. Delivering the proof that we can do it at scale. Uh, delivering, you know, and get the numbers of towers deployed per month, you know, up into double digits, which we're heading for now, you know, and seeing a wide variety of people going a wide variety of things in a wide variety of geographies, being able to use the same machine for their purposes. And so, yeah, that it's proof. And that is entirely where the team is focused. Yeah. And what about yourself? Obviously, there's no shortage of, of travel, I imagine, on your horizon. But what does that look like? And, and what's the value you get from these appearances? And obviously, these conversations where you're educating folks, like we saw at Indoor Icon, is very valuable as well. Well, the great thing about a lot of these events is that you can stand up on stage and you can deliver your message. But you know, the key thing then is to listen, to engage with people, to listen. You know, every day is a school day. We're learning all the time. And, you know, we pick up new stuff. I mean, I had a really, really interesting conversation with the head of culinary for one of the biggest hotel groups on the planet. And he had been introduced to us actually by an artisan gin producer and another Scottish company who were out in the Middle East applying their wares and they were talking with us um he he was talking with the guy this cut head head of culinary for emia and he said you should really go and talk to david blah 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 so we started having a conversation i showed him some video footage of he said oh this will be far too big for us we couldn't possibly need it and i said okay give me typical resort sizes and he said okay well 600 800 a thousand bedrooms all right how much produce do you need? 70 kilos of these things per day. Okay, calculator, let's multiply that by 365. And it comes out at 25,000 kilos. Guess what? And one of our 30-foot high, 9-meter high towers produces, for certain things, 25 tons worth of crop okay. per year. So actually, the match is perfect. So if we've got our 6, 9, and 12-meter high, we can match that up against your 600, 800, and 1,000 bed resorts, and it's teed up perfectly. And when you know, it's really great when you listen and you ask questions and you learn that kind of stuff. You know, it's pure luck, 
but you know it's a perfect fit so you know that again is another conversation that's going really well and it seems like sometimes it's serendipity that those conversations happen in person and you never know you can never really predict what types of connections you're going to be making at some of these events and i can see the high value in continuing to attend yeah i mean remember what napoleon said and this is probably not exactly accurate but you show me a good general and i'll show you a lucky general <laughs> Just as we wrap up, I've been leaving some space at the end of these conversations for my guests to impart any messages they have for the industry. And I know that's essentially how we started this conversation, but any thoughts come to mind? Any messages you have for, you know, obviously you have a lot of your, your colleagues in the space listening to this and people in the industry learning about the industry. So what words do you have for folks in the space in, in lieu of what's been happening recently? I think everybody who has been trying to build their own equipment, their own infrastructure. At one level, you could say they're an IGS customer that hasn't quite made that mental leap yet. And I don't mean that in any way as an arrogant statement. You know, we are open for business. We will work with you know, any credible partner, any credible customer. And we know we have a piece of kit that works. It, you know, And if you have off-taker agreements and you're struggling to satisfy them, pick the phone up. And, you know, we will not gloat. None of the things, none of the headwinds that are happening to people make me happy. I want this industry to succeed. I want us to help tackle climate change. I want us to help feed the world. I want us to supply the world's farmers and horticulturalists and foresters. And that's where we should be focusing our energies as an industry. So, my plea would be, you know, let's work together. Let's try and make this thing happen. Let's uh, cross the chasm and do our bit to support these massive global challenges. Well said. And I think that's definitely advice and feedback that's needed for everyone in the industry. And also to take a collective breath, because I think there's a lot of people that are worked up and worried. And obviously when outside publications like the fast companies of the world talk about the demise of vertical farming you know obviously all that needs to be taken with a grain of salt and also with a perspective of really what's happening from within the industry so i appreciate you coming back on and sharing your perspectives once again it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you and i hope you you feel better soon harry i really do appreciate it you know it's a great medium it's a great channel to be sharing our thoughts and uh, more power to your elbow keep going man <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks, David. Cheers. Special thanks again to David for round three, for being such a important ambassador for this space and for the fine work IGS is doing as well. As always, thanks to our season seven title sponsor. I couldn't be more proud to be partnering with the team at Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you are enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on a future episode. As mentioned, we are wrapping up season seven here, but stay tuned. We should be out no more than a week or two, and we've got a whole slate of great guests lined up for season eight. I can't wait to share those fascinating conversations with you. In the meantime, please revisit that back catalog. Look for some of the guests you might have missed, some of the episodes you might have missed. Share it with friends as well, as that is how we spread the word about all the great things that are happening in this space. Until we meet again for season eight, here's to your health.
Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.